Welcome back to Stargirl. It's Emma. Today is Sunday, September 24th, 2023. Um, what's up, guys? <laughs> it has been like the rainiest weekend ever here in New York, but it, um, I don't always feel like this, but this time around, I genuinely felt like it's a cozy weekend where I like get a lot of stuff done. Um, so I uh, hope, hope you all made the most of it as well. Um, so today we are talking about Emily Weiss, um, the founder and former CEO of Glossier. And to discuss her, we have an expert. So <laughs> earlier this week, I got to speak with Marissa Meltzer, um, who is a writer, journalist who's been covering beauty and wellness spaces forever. And um, she just came out with a book like two weeks ago on Glossier and Emily. It's called Glossy Beauty, Ambition, and the Inside Story of Emily Weiss's Glossier. So um, awesome to get to talk to her and like, yeah, actually have an expert point of view that has like put in years of reporting um, to, I don't know, substantiate <laughs> the Stargirl analysis. Um, so yeah, I think we'll just get right into it. And I have a couple of notes and yeah, other little things to chat through. Um, but I'll, I'll get to those on the other side. So yes, without further ado, let's hear from Marissa. Hi, Marissa. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for making time. Oh, of course. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Um, and so nice to meet you. Oh, yeah. You too. <laughs> um, have you, are you in New York right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm in Manhattan. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm in Brooklyn, but we're enjoying a gorgeous early fall day, oh, I hope. so nice. It's like, I know. Yeah. It's like the perfect day. Um, yeah. And I know you have a hard stop, so I might just jump fully right in yeah please do yeah. yeah okay cool um okay so just quick to set the stage for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with our work so um marissa is a writer journalist who's covered the beauty industry wellness lifestyle etc for decades um and most recently yeah. just last week actually her new book glossy ambition beauty and the inside story of emily weiss came out so first of all congratulations it's received amazing press and yeah so, um, and just so you have some info about my show, oh my God, your dog. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, my, dog, my dogs come over to say hi, yeah. Adorable. Oh um, uh, so, okay, so Stargirl, I call it a show about girls who stand out. And so at each yeah. episode, we tackle like a different controversial woman in pop culture, essentially. So Yeah, I've seen some of them. Yeah, okay. I know Michaela did Sally Rooney, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you've got the number. Um, but Emily Weiss was like obviously a natural fit for the show. And when I saw you, that this book was coming out, I'm like, okay, I have to find you. So I'm like <laughs> yeah. really stoked that you can give the inside look on her persona. Um, Absolutely. Okay. So before we dive into Emily and all of her vibes and what she represents, I want to talk about Glossier itself. So I guess Glossier is often lumped in with all of the other like late 2010s millennial brands like obviously The Wing, Away Luggage, Man Repeller, etc. Outdoor mm -hmm. Voices. Um, but I feel like in the book you really make the case for Glossier being like the quintessential millennial brand. So yeah, I'm wondering if you can talk about what sets it apart. I mean, you know, one thing that I keep coming back to thinking that is Glossier launched on Instagram and it was the first brand to do that. So now a brand like teasing its existence on Instagram with like a mood board is completely commonplace. But at the time, no one had done that before. So it was like you knew that Into the Gloss, the blog about beauty that Emily Weiss started, was going to start some sort of company that seemed like it was selling products. Mm -hmm. And all they had on the Glossier Instagram account was like pictures of sunsets and <laughs> deserts and roses and Victorian homes painted pink. Mm -hmm. And it was so exciting and mysterious and weird. And like, to me, that is kind of the distillation of what makes it like the ultimate millennial brand. I mean, for one thing, their signature color what is millennial pink, right. like that light pink shade that was just 
inescapable, but at the time when they started using it, they weren't the first, but it felt very fresh, very kind mm. of like fashion. And, you know, they were kind of bringing this supreme drop style of products to a female audience. So you had that kind of like hype of like, what are they coming out with next? What am I going to need? And, you know, you had a founder that was this young woman who had been on a reality TV show and worked in like media and fashion and was this kind of like street style star who then, you know, became the founder of a billion dollar company that was her first company and pretty much first job. Yeah, I feel like you highlight that like right off the bat in the book too, just about its valuation. Mm -hmm. Like none of these other companies that are supposedly Glossier's peers were ever valued Mm -hmm. over a billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, whether that is because they weren't, I don't know, like didn't have the same quality or like, you know, legs or they just didn't last long enough. But, you know, beauty is a source of great wealth for people and always have. And I think Glossier sort of brought that a little more mainstream. Like Rihanna is a billionaire or at least on paper because of Fenty Beauty, not because Mm -hmm. of, I mean, when's the last time she went on tour, you know? Um, And so, yeah, that is, that's something that I think is also totally unique to the era. Yeah. I've heard you talk about on some other podcasts, um, like, yeah, beauty as this really enduring industry, right? That like even through Mm -hmm. depression, whatever, like lipstick effect, which we all know about. Like, do you think... At the time when Glossier launched, was beauty being considered critically in the way that it is now? Beauty has never been considered as critically as fashion has Mm. for, I think, various reasons. I think part of it is like that kind of devil wears Prada cerulean Mm. famous speech. And like beauty was kind of the bottom of that. So it was like you had like runway and haute couture that like i don't know um gucci would do or mm-hmm. whatever tom ford or something um dior and those colors the makeup that was on the um models and kind of general vibe would trickle all the way down to you know department store beauty mm-hmm. brands and so like fashion was considered creative enough and artistic enough to take seriously and to write about. But beauty kind of kept the lights on at publications and was considered this kind of like product and something that you would write about in a way that was like, which blush is the blush of the season or, you know, in these sort of very like tepid ways. And even to this day, there isn't a great deal of critical writing about about beauty, really. Even a lot of, I think, like, you know, beauty news or, or like, podcasts, a lot of them, some are great, but a lot of them are very, like, fan-oriented, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like people that want to talk about beauty still end up wanting to talk about, like, what's the latest and greatest and exciting and who's launching a brand. And um, it's less about, you know... Um, beauty itself, which is interesting because it's so, it's literally the most intimate thing. It's what you're putting on your face and your body and dealing with what you consider beautiful and whether you're trying to make yourself more beautiful and what that's all about. Totally. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like we're very comfortable seeing fashion as like lens for larger cultural conversations, but beauty right. less like so. You're, it's your armor. It's how you're mm. looking. Everyone has to get dressed and somehow beauty has never really had the same treatment. And, you know, similarly, people think of like LVMH and Kering as these like fashion powerhouse luxury brands um, that are like a source of, you know, wealth and power and industry. But, you know, beauty is what always pays a lot of those (laughs) bills. And, you know, beauty editors and magazines were always secretly so powerful because, so much of that advertising money was for beauty products. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So interesting. I'm curious, like, I assume you were a Into the Gloss fan. 
initially. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah, tell me a little bit about your personal experience w- with Glossier, finding it, getting really interested in it. And I don't know if these are differentiated for you, but like as a journalist versus as a consumer. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that was fun about this story was that I had experienced a lot of it just like in real time. Like Mm -hmm. I wasn't discovering Glossier after the fact. So I first saw Emily Weiss, I think like a lot of people, like I was watching The Hills on MTV and she had like a, I think three episode arc and was sort of like, whoa, who is this super <laughs> like, like adult 20 year old that's come <laughs> in to sort of like take care of business with all these kind of like clueless dummies that like, can't, <laughs> you know, that are so helpless, with, you know, and, um, and then fast forward, you know, maybe like three or four years later, and I heard, you know, through someone that there was this beauty blog launching, which it was like, oh, right. Like we don't have that. There were all these cool fashion blogs. And then, um, and then on top of it, it was that girl from the Hills who I like hadn't thought about in years. And I was a reader and I loved how kind of intimate into the gloss was. And it was just, you know, it felt not contrived. Like when you were in, you know, um, a top shelf reading about, um, like Jenna Lyons, for example, favorite products, you truly felt like she was just with you in the bathroom showing you the like, um, whatever it was, like blush or, you know, lip gloss she had a friend bring back from Japan. And (laughs) you saw that everyone, you know, just like so many people have that mix of like high products and low products. You know, I'm the same way. I have like a wet and wild brand highlighter <laughs> that I love mixed with like, you know, a probably like 1500 or not 1500 but like $150 <laughs> eye cream I've like been known to buy, you know, we're all kind totally. of that way, or at least many of us are. And so it was relatable. And it was also just fun. Like, I want to know what products and models are buying and duty free mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It felt, um, it felt both like aspirational and kind of fantastic in a fantasy sense, but mm-hmm. also um, like attainable. Yeah. And I also feel like Emily, like she was on the pulse. Like she was selecting mm-hmm. all of the coolest people at like a range of fame levels. Yeah. Which is also cool. Like even, you know, at Into the Glosses, probably like height, they did have like the Kardashians on there. But even then it was like, in this way where they seemed so natural and normal Mm -hmm. and you know and then there'd also be just some like novelist or someone who was like yeah you know a vegetarian chef (laughs) or like some you know indie actress that like no one has really heard of and you know it wasn't this thing of like reading like the us weekly what's in my bag column where you're like okay what like are they promoting like right. where is good where is like the dentine gum or like hair tie brand that like they're <laughs> contractually obligated to plug it didn't it felt very um authentic and like it also had this like very sort of functional and healthy community attached where the commenters were usually like pretty i don't know like nice Mm. I would say like (laughs) it was more about people being like I don't know where to buy this or you know oh here's a cheaper version of this thing that they recommended and you know it it felt like something that was kind of the ultimate like if you know you know Mm -hmm. group activity totally yeah and for those who don't know or haven't read Marissa's book yet you talk about how like Emily was the person going into the homes of these cool women and sitting on their bathroom floor and taking pictures so she was able to cultivate like a real intimacy in the shoots Mm -hmm. and everything and this actually kind of leads into the persona conversation that intimacy and kind of you know just comfortableness I feel like is kind Mm -hmm. of stands at odds with a lot of what we now think of as the Emily Weiss persona um yeah yeah I guess I just how would you describe her public facing persona as the head of Glossier or the evolution. I mean, I think the 
evolution was that she decided that Glossier, when they actually started selling products, should be friendly, Mm. that the message should be smiley and, you know, you can sit with us and, like, not intimidating, not feel like it's for sort of, like, beautiful coastal model types Mm. that, like, you two can afford it and that you want it. And so she had to kind of do this dance where even though she had sort of gotten famous as someone who is this like arbiter of good taste who wore you know beautiful designer clothes who kind of looked like a a model who had modeled um that she had to kind of like rebrand herself a little bit as a little bit more of an every woman Mm -hmm. or a champion of the every woman and you know that's when I think things can get hard because it's hard to sort of rebrand yourself as like more, um, I don't know, like approachable than maybe you are naturally or, you know, that suddenly it's hard because anyone can have any experience with you or the brand and then it doesn't live up to this kind of like happy ethos that you're selling. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like there was almost this like identity confusion around like is this an inclusive or exclusive contract that yeah, I Yeah, I mean they yeah, I think they had they tried to kind of have it both ways. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, there was it was inclusive and in that, you know, the messaging was inclusive. The models were very beautiful, but they had like some kind of quirk, mm-hmm. you know, where it was like a, a ton of freckles. Or like or, a gap tooth know, or something. Tooth. Yeah. Yeah. Like some some little thing that actually made them more stunningly beautiful, <laughs> yeah. you know? They were a size eight instead of a size zero <laughs> or something like that. And so, um, and then they also had these stores that were really um, kind of like Wonka worlds mm. and stuff. So it was like this thing of like, if you can make it to New York or LA or a city where we're doing a pop-up, you're going to have this like, insane immersive totally amazing experience but we're not going to sell in an Ulta or Sephora or Target or you know whatever else to actually make getting the products easier like if you wanted it you had to order it pretty much like sight unseen off the internet which I you know I mean I don't do that I you know even if your return policy is super easy that's asking a lot for people, especially when it's like color cosmetics or something like that. Yeah. No, I'm glad you brought up the retail spaces because I think like 123 Lafayette, like in and of itself was kind mm-hmm. of a little phenomenon. And I moved to New York when I was 24 in 2018. So I feel like I was like to be a writer. Okay. So I was like perfectly marketed to. Right. You were, like, you yeah. were that demographic. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I'd love to hear you just talk about that that space and the years when it was really lively. Um, and also okay. just back to the first question I asked you about how Glossier like stands out among all these millennial brands. Like I think this was a time when we were always hearing like retail is dead, right? And then they brought these yeah. really immersive experiences, um, kind of rebirthed that whole space. So anyways, yeah, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, about their retail spaces were almost like a museum of ice. I've never mm. been to the museum of ice cream, but those <laughs> sort of like Instagram fake museums. And it had a little bit of that quality where it was very like made to be taking selfies, you know, mm-hmm. the... Um, the Lafayette Street um, flagship had like tubes of Glossier cloud paint and boy brow that were like adult life size. And like this room that looked like a giant, but very beautiful, like public restroom where you were encouraged to just like try stuff on and wash your hands and like kind of interact with strangers the way that people might in a bathroom. Um, And that was, so their original office was, on Lafayette Street in Soho and they had this like top floor area that eventually they started letting like people come in and like try stuff out and then it became so popular that like fans would come and just like park there and like (laughs) order pizza to be delivered and like and just like they just like wanted to hang out for so long but literally people were like it was like a Friday afternoon and trying to like finish work. And it was like, okay, you guys have to leave now. Like, <laughs> you know, there were no actual like employees that were like retail employees. So then they, um, 
built it into, um, they moved their offices and built the old offices into this like, you know, retail fantasy space that had the, you know, giant boy brows and everything. And it really felt like it was just really something. Mm -hmm. It was really like, um, you know, there were lines out front, there were groups of people shopping, the people who worked there were wearing pink jumpsuits and were very cool looking, but also like so nice mm -hmm. and would happily answer each question. There was no like, um, sort of like cash register point of sale, mm -hmm. like you just like put an order in with the um, people that work there and then they would just sort of like call your number when it was ready. Yeah. Like it just felt sort of like futuristic, but also kind of like an old school department store or something at the same time. Totally. I was just going to say like, because it was a legitimate tourist destination, it almost was like mm -hmm. an adult FAO Schwartz or something, you know? Oh, that's a great comparison. Yeah. yeah. Um, so many times my first year living in New York, I literally went there like between engagements to like refresh my makeup. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of like the way that this is a little bit before your time, but kind of in the pre iPhone era mm. that Apple stores, particularly yeah. the one in Soho, you could, anyone could log on and like check their email or whatever. And it was like, you would be like between meetings and like go to the Apple store and check your email in case there was anything you missed. And there was this like unemployed model that claimed that she was like writing a novel between go sees at the Apple store. And it was kind of the same thing where it was like they, and for things that you used to maybe get in trouble for mm -hmm. at like an old school department store or, you know, something, they were like, yeah, come in, use our products. Like we want you to experience it, mm -hmm. you know, um, which was a, probably a very forward way of thinking. Yeah. And it was also just really fun. The yeah. Um, okay. I have a couple more questions for you about Emily specifically. Yeah. So we kind of talked about the evolution of her persona, but I think in the book, like especially as an interview subject, she's very guarded and maybe even like cold. And um, yeah, just like to hear you talk a little bit more about that self-portrayal and also how that kind of stands out among her peers of the Audrey Gelman, Ty Haney, more like sunny type. Yeah, so I think that Emily wanted to be taken seriously. And I think part of that was she was reluctant to be pegged or doing anything that she thought is sort of too, like, female-coded in terms mm. of press. Like, she was very, you know, like, would a male founder be asked this question, which is right to think about, but I would kind of argue in the world of, like, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk as like tabloid figures that like we are asking these questions of you know male executives but so she was kind of like you know Bram was never called Emily Weiss she never really modeled for it she was public but she wasn't so public that like you know there were plenty of people who had no idea who she was and I remember being with her while interviewing her at the Glossier flagship on Lafayette on a weekend day where it was packed. And like some people knew who she was and like came and said hi, but like I would say arguably most of the people there either didn't let on that they know who she was or just straight up had no idea. Mm -hmm. And so I think that she was always kind of playing with that of like how much she wanted to be seen and known and associated, how much she wanted to be just, you know, a founder and an executive and how much she wanted to be something else, you know, like a woman who could be propped up and, and sort of seen as, um, I don't know, exemplary or special. Mm -hmm. And so she, um, she's said a, lo a lot of no's to press. Like she didn't do a lot of, um, um, press and I can think of like at least a few profiles that she didn't participate in that were like long profiles of the company and she didn't give the person an interview and so yeah I think that like she understood probably the value of scarcity but also was kind of working out herself about what kind of role she wanted to play in the public and then there would be these moments like 
she pretty infamously posted this like routine for her wedding yeah. um in 2016 i want to say um of like everything that she had done like i forget there was some like colonics there was like hair removal there was extension you know there was so much for like a 37 person wedding in the bahamas and people really lost it over it. and it's true i mean you could write an entire feminist thesis based on all of that information and i think it freaked her out a little bit and made her want to step back even more and mm -hmm. so she had participated in some profiles that i had written partly because i had started interviewing her um in the into the gloss days of just like oh i'm doing a story on like bleached hair and you just bleached your hair will you like talk to me about it um and also because i wrote for sort of big enough magazines that when wired wants to do a story on glossier they were like yes absolutely or like vanity fair is going to do a big profile those are exciting things um but you know she always had this um strange sort of push and pull, you know, even with the New York Times, they wanted her to like, let have her do her own kind of top shelf and talk about the products that she used. And she wouldn't even do that for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. I think I can't remember if I listened to you say this on a podcast or you wrote it, but it was like, she would never like anything that she didn't author herself. Yeah, I think that that's true. I mean, I think that that was sort of something I understood with writing this book was mm -hmm. that um, for one thing, like it was my work of, you know, it was my writing. And so it wasn't something that she had to authorize, but also that I kind of understood her as this person that would not be easily, um, you know, satisfied by anything that wasn't completely her own work that she had signed off on. And so to kind of have appropriate <laughs> expectations yeah yeah that makes sense um on star girl when we're discussing the various women one thing we talk about is like the idea of narrative control and so if there's like this spectrum of control over your own narrative like where do people fall and so my mm -hmm. assumption from your book is that mm -hmm. she's really a control freak about her image and really over analyzes it and is very careful um yeah, I think you're right. She had narrative control because also she just had a lot of agency. Mm. She was a person who, you know, it was her idea. She got the funding. She was the founder. She was also the CEO. She, you know, by her own design, got to sign off on everything. But it was also that control that was her downfall in a way because mm. she really did not ever quite figure out how to delegate and how mm -hmm. to have that like trustworthy, you know, second in command or someone who could deal with a lot of like operations, supply chain, like, you know, things like human resources that she wasn't particularly interested in, let alone an expert in. Mm -hmm. And because of, I think that desire to assert her sort of influence on every little bit of the company as it's growing to like a 200 person company, you know, it's too much for one person. And it's not exactly like the best use of her time or the smartest way to manage. So that narrative control is kind of her downfall. Totally. I'm just going to throw this out there. I don't even know if I fully believe this, but I'm curious your thoughts. Like, I love a, I love a wackadoo theory. Okay, so okay. The weirder the better. <laughs> so Glossier obviously has like a ton of brand loyalty, I think, even as it's no longer like the unicorn cool girl one brand. Like, I mean, I st like I did my face in mostly Glossier makeup this morning still. Um, Gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I use it too. It's oh, great. great. But I wonder if Emily her herself has that kind of loyalty like loyal fan base. Oh, I see. Um, I was going to say, yeah, I bet Emily uses all kinds of other products. Oh, oh yeah, well, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think she does. I mean, I think part of that is because she wasn't the face of the brand and she was more the face of Into the Gloss, but that was, you know, years ago at this mm -hmm. point, like probably over a decade since she was like very visible in um, her own companies and like appearing a lot. So 
unless you were kind of like an old fan or like really obsessive, you didn't really know that much about her. Like in some ways, I still don't know a lot about mm-hmm. her. And I've seen her underwear drying on a rack in her bedroom, you know, but like she, I don't even know that her own closest friend, you know, she's a person that is mysterious, I believe to everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was first working on the book that I thought that maybe I would get to that like center and crack it or like figure out, who she really was or what she really thought or anything. And instead she's a person that invites a lot of layers of questions, Mm. which um, I think ends up being a satisfying read and someone, you know, like we don't get enough stories about women who are kind of ciphers. You know, we tend to want to put people, especially women in like heroic or villainous roles. And, you know, she is, um, she's her own thing. Yeah. You have this great quote where you say, she's a complicated woman that's more admired than she is liked, which yeah. really struck me. Um, and I actually think it's true a lot of, of a lot of the women we discuss on this show. I think um, you're right. Yeah. She's kind of like awe-inspiring, but like, I don't know. I think she induces kind of yeah, fear. Yeah. And, and honestly, yeah, and honestly being liked and like trying to be liked is, a kind of a losing battle and probably not something that a lot of, you know, um, women who would be on your show or like really successful women are like maybe overly concerned about, mm. or they force themselves just to, to get out of that trap that so many women get into of like, do you like me? Are you mad at me? You know, like yeah, all of totally. that because that, you know, it's like that can overpower everything else. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you, also mentioned that she is really adamant that she's like a steward of the brand not the brand right she doesn't want to be the face of the brand which is pretty distinct from like Leandra Medina and Man Repeller where those very close together or Audrey Gelman in the wing where they're like it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily that those were vanity projects and I don't even think it would be a bad thing if they were but like there's so much more distance between Glossier's brand identity and Emily's so I guess you mentioned that like her control freakness was kind of her downfall as a CEO but on the other hand, like it kind of protected her because she's mm-hmm. has that distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that like it, she didn't offer so much of herself up mm-hmm. and, you know, that was sort of less to, I don't know, take down or, or, or something like when someone doesn't put as much of themselves out there, it's a little less, you know, it's not low hanging fruit, you know, someone like, um, who's writing like blog posts, like Leandra, that are sort of more personal or like someone, um, like Audrey Gelman, that's really using like feminism and like female empowerment and like herself and her, um, friend group to like publicize this company those are much sort of easier things to like point your criticism towards. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, so I guess we've kind of danced around this, but like the the Glossier ethos of like effortlessness, no makeup, makeup, as all things do, it kind of went out of fashion. And I'd love to hear you mm-hmm. talk about like what what took its place or yeah, just how trends moved that Glossier wasn't able to like keep that, you know, that edge. Yeah, I mean, every trend is a reaction to what came before. And so when Glossy was taking off, a lot of that was a reaction to like, contouring and kind of like YouTube influencer, like kind of drag influenced makeup. And by the time, you know, Glossier turns, you know, eight years old or something, suddenly that like cold perfection of Instagram feels a little dated and we like the messiness of the photo dump and like the TikTok girls that are just like putting on their makeup or like looking, you know, or in their like messy apartments, you know, there's like a certain realness and authenticity that that Mm -hmm. notes. And um, I think part of it all happens so quickly now because we're so inundated with like visuals all the time and trends and, you know, everything like that cycle is 
so much faster than it ever has been. So I think it's really hard for anyone, let alone any company to keep up with that Mm -hmm. and not feel like you're just constantly, you know, a little bit behind chasing a trend. But, you know, at the same time, Glossier, you know, they have that challenge. Like they do need to figure out some exciting new products and kind of, you know, have a little bit of that magic and delight for their customers and figure out who they are. Yeah, it's interesting. You you write about um, Glossier Play, this kind of mm-hmm. s- sort of failed launch of like more like sparkly going out makeup that they tried to do. Yeah, which actually like predated like Euphoria glitter he- that phase. Yeah, absolutely. But it's kind I of interesting that, that it was mine. a flop. Yeah. Oh, you do. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, why do you think Play flopped? Um, I think that it was. It was expensive because Mm. it was all very like quickly put together and a lot of, you know, weird chains of command and communication. So it was Mm. like, is it this or is it like this? Do we want this? Do we want this? We, oh, we spent all this money on the photo shoot. We don't like it. Oh, well, you know, so it was like they were investing a lot of money and not doing it super methodically. And then they decided to make play this kind of, you know, sub brand, like when it could have just been a collection mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever, or, you know, a limited edition set or just Glossier's glitter makeup or whatever. <laughs> and so it's like they put all this effort into making it a sub brand when it just didn't need to be that complicated. <laughs> yeah. I think. And it was also maybe a little ahead of its time. Like it was very kind of euphoria makeup before euphoria and so that was also you know maybe a little bit of victim of being Mm. a little too ahead of the curve yeah of what people wanted yeah I remember when it came out and it was kind of a a a little bit of a public l because they had made the whole new instagram account for yeah and then and then it becomes very like oh that hasn't been updated in how many years and then yeah I mean Play, like, debuted and closed, I think, within the same calendar year. Like, it was all quite fast. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, Anyways, yeah, I just wanted to ask you about that. Because I feel like you also talk about in the book, like, the reason people trusted Glossier was that they had a really clear perspective initially. And as Play, as an example of something that they tried to do as an offshoot, and it was like, wait, what's... We, you know, not that you don't trust that move, but it just fell outside of the point of view of Glossier. Yeah, yeah, it did. It was a little like, yeah, like if I think it would have probably been a huge success if it was like a holiday makeup collection mm. or set or something like that, which is probably how they maybe would have sold it now or something like that, where you're like, ooh, limited edition glitter set for all of my holiday parties, you know, or something like that. Um, that probably would have been great. But this idea, it was a, kind of a big line. There were like makeup brushes, which are like hard to mm. sell and expensive to make. Like it was just, it was ambitious and I think not very well planned and not necessarily very well executed. Yeah, that's funny you mentioned the brushes. I actually still have my like gl- liquid glitter applicator. <laughs> I do too, that like little spatula. The little wedge, yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, I have it too. Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's useful. But yeah. again, like it was, you know, I, I have a play like blush brush that's a little, or um, I use it as a blush brush. It's a little odd, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, I know you have to go in like six minutes. So I want to talk about like death of the girl boss and recent commentary on that. So, okay, yeah. so like 2020, New York Magazine declares the girl boss is dead following all of the kind of, I don't know what we want to call them. Everything that came out about several female founders and kind of the downfall, many yeah. of them stepped away from their positions, et cetera. And yeah, it was... felt a little bit like a girl boss reckoning. And yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, and then recently, like just in the past couple of months, I've heard a lot of chatter online kind of talking about how girl boss as a term or as like a, a chapter of feminism is very, it's like a misogynistic lens. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. curious your thoughts on that. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, girl boss was always kind of a 
a demeaning term. And I don't think it was a phrase that anyone, except for like Sophia Amoroso from Nazi Gal, who named her memoir Girl Boss. But like, no one was like proudly like, I'm a girl boss. It was the kind of thing where it was like a trend article and it was like, here are the girl bosses. Mm -hmm. And they kind of, you know, named these women who had, you know, were founders of kind of forward facing companies that sold like feminism and community along with, you know, its products. And they kind of loosely knew each other and, Mm -hmm. you know, were kind of socially connected and beautiful and cool and similar ages. Um, I think the important thing to remember is a small group of people um, and that it wasn't necessarily probably what they wanted to be called. But at the same time, you know, sure, it was kind of misogynistic, but it was a moment and it did help them in a way like it helped them get um, press. And like, I don't know that any of them would have been talked about that way if they didn't have like communications teams and publicists Mm -hmm. and stuff that were trying to get them in magazines because there are plenty of female founders who you know aren't traditionally beautiful or who don't work in who work in like b2b companies or you know don't live in new york or la who you know were never once mentioned in the same breath um and it was a way for someone like emily who didn't want to talk about her personal life um to talk about being a female entrepreneur Mm -hmm. i love that perspective because as i've been reading all of these comment threads about how it's misogynistic whatever i was thinking like okay but how is this term useful and like what did it capture about this moment in time and I hadn't even really thought about like the kind of leverage that people were able to get out of that as a buzzword. But I almost think like even as it's like infantilizing or demeaning, you've often said like there's no boy boss, right? But there is something about like fourth wave feminism as it existed at that time that was very girlish and like perky and precocious and kind of had the student council president energy to it. So I guess it may be demeaning, but I also think it's kind of apt. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think so too. It was, you know, it was, it somehow fit the time of all of these women posing in like pink power pantsuits and, you know, like uh, talking about, you know, their businesses as if, you know, they were like saving the world when really, you know, it was like a blog or a luggage company or, you know, just makeup. Yeah. And that's okay too. Yeah. Um, Like what's today's girl boss or yeah who has stepped into these shoes oh gosh I don't know I think that like there's a lot of interesting threads I'm fascinated by all of the women who have like shopping newsletters Mm -hmm. um that's definitely a thing that sort of like recommendations girlies Mm -hmm. I mean I subscribe to a lot of them I find them interesting but there is a little bit of a cult of personality around that um I mean definitely women who have podcasts, whether they're, <laughs> <Hell yeah. laughs> whether they're like talking about their lives and it's kind of personal or if it's more like a chatty podcast or they're just hosting like, mm-hmm. you know, a true crime or some sort of history based podcast. I do think that that, that, again, there are so many of them, but it is interesting to see like which ones are rise to the top, which mm-hmm. ones are written about, which, and then you have to look at all the negative space of like, okay, if you're concentrating on these people, who is, who are we not looking at Mm. and why? And, you know, I think with, with a lot of spaces, there's, that's a, that's a good thing to think about. What's not being spotlighted. Mm -hmm. Um, Also quickly, I've heard that your next book is on the myth of Jane Birkin. It is. It's (laughs) It's a biography of Jane Birkin and kind of the myth of the French girl. So Kind Another of... woman caught up in the moment. Yeah, <laughs> for, sure. for sure. That's awesome. Um, well, I will link to your book and let me know if there's anything oh, else so that you, yeah, would like me to share. Oh, such a pleasure. I had so much fun. Oh, thank you great. so much. Thank you so much for your time and enjoy the beautiful evening. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Take care. Yeah, you too. Talk soon.
Bye. Bye. Okay. Hi, guys. Um, So awesome, right? To hear from someone that pounded the pavement getting the information, right? Like there's – I'm actually amazed at like how much we can scrap together just by um, – the the documents that exist about a person but to have someone like marissa who's done so much like primary research um is really cool so yeah and and if you are unfamiliar with her work i'll link a bunch of stuff that um that she's worked on or that i like other podcasts i heard her on because there's yeah a ton of cool stuff to listen to oh i didn't even realize initially but Marissa kind of has a star girly bent to a lot of her projects in terms of like woman as lens. Like obviously she just wrote Glossy. And then um, a previous book that she wrote is about Jean Neidich who founded Weight Watchers. And then as she said, she's doing the the myth of Jane Birkin coming up. Okay, I want to circle back on a couple of things that Marissa pointed out and then some other things that I didn't get a chance to ask her that I'm going to pose to you all. Um, so yeah, number one is that reading her book, talking with her, just doing, I don't know, my own quote unquote research and reflection on Glossier. I was really convinced that Glossier is the single millennial brand at least woman millennial brand or even like straight woman millennial brand but you know it gets so lumped in with the wing and outdoor voices and away luggage and nasty gal whatever but it is such a better emblem of the time than any of those other companies and so you know marissa mentioned how there's some structural components to that like it you know really paving the way for d to c and the structure of their drops that kind of borrowed from like streetwear brands but a couple things we didn't get to talk about is just into the gloss even being a really stage setting type of venture. Um, like I heard Marissa on the Vogue podcast and they were talking about how into the gloss like predated newsletter style content hubs right so like obviously we had blogs way before this but like the way that into the gloss functioned is like very similar to like Substacks or something like that where there's this massive following but you're really hearing like a singular voice this singular voice is like curating for you so that was really interesting and then another thing they brought up is how into the gloss like predated like affiliate links and so Emily wasn't even making money off of the products that she would list after the top shelf interviews but like that type of like culling products and kind of like making these recommendation lists um, is something that we're so inundated with today. And I'm not saying that like consciously into the gloss set that stage, but in hindsight, it's like, whoa, Emily was kind of the first person to be doing this in a new way at a really big scale. Um, So that's pretty cool. And then obviously aesthetically, Glossier is kind of like the best encapsulation of all of the millennial vibes. Um, And in the book, Marissa does a good job of situating Glossier's look and feel within other beauty brands. Um, So she talks about how they borrowed heavily from Clinique um, with like the lab coats and the really like clean branding and they're just kind of like fresh natural feeling vibes and then also the influence from like Dove's Real Beauty campaign which I'm sure we all remember like I remember that from being like teenager whatever um but in comparison to Dove Real Beauty stuff like something I think is really cool about Glossier is that they weren't conciliatory like it wasn't like your aging butt or like you know there's uh, impossible standards of beauty but it was very sincere in its value proposition kind of so yes it was like effortlessness no makeup makeup um you know with the like unspoken underbelly of like all of the labor that goes into achieving an effortless makeup look or something but I think that it wasn't patronizing to women in a way that some of these other millennial brands were and there was no element of like shame busting going on of like oh there's so much hardship of being a woman um or that yeah there's so much shame in like our bodies and our choices and our whatever whereas like if you think of like the wing or like thinks period proof underwear like the way that those places positioned their their product and their community and whatever they were offering to the market was like kind of take back your power, like this shame busting. And I think, I mean, my like highest reading of 
what Emily Weiss was doing with Glossier, at least at the beginning, was just like, I'm not saying it asked a lot of women, but it wasn't like meeting them in their most like vulnerable and ashamed and like selling empowerment as much as some of the other ones were, which I just think is cool. Um, And this kind of bleeds into another point I wanted to bring up, which was about Glossier and point of view. So I think that something we forget about Glossier because it defined and captured an aesthetic that became omnipotent was that it actually had a really distinct perspective. And um, in her book, Marissa writes, Glossier wasn't going to offer five types of something and that was why people trusted them. They had a perspective. So this idea of a brand having a clear perspective and a defined market that is maybe narrow and maybe not appealing to everybody is something I just want us to like remember and chew on and and bring forward. Um, But I think it's important to remember that Glossier was a company that was asserting something, right? And it had the guts to say, at least in the beginning, this is what's beautiful and this is what's cool. And that's hard to do in general but when we compare it to like the demands placed on a lot of brands today you have to be for everybody you have to be inclusive of everything you have to stand for everything and everyone yeah maybe it just feels increasingly rarer to be like this is my point of view on femininity and this is what I'm offering to women um so that is interesting. Um, wait, was I just going to say something? Oh, 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 back to the inclusivity point. Like, in part, that reflects well on business leaders who are like internalizing the criticisms that their predecessors and their predecessors companies received. So they kind of, you know, sidestep that criticism and demonstrate awareness of like whatever conscious consumers. And they also, by making their products like available for everybody, um, like also tap into like a potentially way bigger market, right? So like there's a lot of just like smart business acumen happening in that choice. But I think there's more trepidation around having a point of view, even if that point of view is just like defining your market, right? Anyways, back to the Glossier's point of view. It's interesting because I do agree that Glossier had a really distinct perspective. And then Marissa had this great quote on the Every Outfit podcast where she said that one of the beautiful things about Glossier, especially in in its infancy, was that it represented in her words the quote, lingua franca of femme. Um, And I think that that is really cool to think about like how at once both of those could be true, right? That there was this like clear kind of narrow perspective on femininity and beauty, again, which was like effortlessness and um, really like clean skin and really, um, yeah, minimal and understated, but glowy and soft. And so there was that narrow perspective and we felt, or at least Marissa's expressing in that quote, that it also was a stand-in for this larger collective femininity that felt really, um, like, felt really true in some ways. Anyway, I just think that's interesting, and I love that phrase, the lingua franca of femme, and I was trying to think about, like, okay, what brands or what people or, yeah, what spaces, like, feel like they're carrying that torch for 2023? Like, who is setting a standard and making a declaration around collective femininity. Um, And it doesn't mean that everybody then buys into that or that becomes like dogma, but it sets a standard and then gives people, consumers, competitors, other brands, whatever, something to react to, you know? And so I guess in, in that way, like Glossier as an organizing principle, Glossier is like a star girl brand, right? Um, So yeah. And I guess like we can kind of chart, I wouldn't call it Glossier's downfall. Like I think a lot of articles have talked about this book as charting the rise and fall of Glossier. I don't really think there has been a fall. It's just like brand dilution and it's no longer like at the cutting edge or it's at Sephora, whatever, you know. Um, But anyways, we can kind of chart that brand dilution alongside their perspective broadening, right? There is a loss there, even if there's also you know, good things that can can come out of it. That broadening is part of what aids in something losing its edge, right? But I also want to talk about Emily a little bit more. So um, one, like I think when I was 
like an on the ground consumer of Glossier and like the you don't know, 2016 to 2019 era. I feel like I didn't give Emily that much credit or something. Or like, you know, part of what Marissa and I were talking about was that she was kind of so cold, so distant, like not a super charismatic leader or even like, uh, obviously she she had a lot of agency in terms of the, the entrepreneurial side of things, but in terms of like a public facing character, yeah, she didn't have that charisma or that seem like she loved to be on stage as like an, uh, Leandra or an Audrey Gelman or a Ty Haney. I feel like I was just less interested in her because there was less to grab onto. Um, but now looking back and after reading her book, I'm like, whoa, like Glossy was really born out of a vision that she had. Like she fucking had something to express and she did it through this brand, right? It wasn't like I'm identifying this market space, you know, into the gloss helps it feel really organic and really like in her point of view. Um, because, you know, it's like she was the person behind the camera the person penning the interviews the person like speaking to all of these women um and like you know created that like in her likeness um and then glossier springing from that so i think that's yeah it's just cool to like now learning more about it see how influential she was and what a visionary she was um the other thing was like i kind of forgot that emily had like real downtown cachet and I think like that's probably because when I intercepted her that was like already when Glossier was taking off so I wasn't really privy to the like early into the gloss days where she was really like had her finger on the pulse of like who were the cool people and she cultivated this whole vibe but yeah because I think we I always knew her as just like power suit I don't know. Like, I I didn't really think of her as cool for some reason. And now I'm like, oh, I forgot that she, like, was kind of edgy early on. Even as, you know, she's very, like, above the belt and, like, uh, just kind of professional. But still, I'm like, she actually went kind of hard. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And again, to, like, compare her to the other girl bosses, she's really not a loudmouth. And, you know... As I was just saying, part of that is like, okay, she, so she doesn't come off as very like charismatic or even very like interesting. And, um, you know, Marissa was saying like she always found her so mysterious. And I was like, oh, I totally didn't even like think of her as this cipher figure. I just thought of her as like kind of blah or something. Um, but I'm open to being convinced. <laughs> um, and one thing I was thinking about was that even as she is kind of stoic and calculated, she also is kind of more sensual in some ways. And I wanted to talk about that, like the way that she performed her sexuality online. But before that, one funny thing that I heard Marissa say on another podcast was that the first time she actually like saw Emily in the flesh was at a beach in Mexico when Emily and Emily was topless, but it was like not really a topless beach. And that s- stood out to me because I'm in my mind, I'm like, wait, Emily is like so buttoned up. Like she would never be like that free. And like, like I just thought she was more like modest or something. But then I was like, wait, I remember actually this kind of like eroticism that she would perform on her Instagram that always stood out to me because it seemed like at odds with the like power suit boardroom vibes. Um, And I just pulled up her Instagram now. Like I remember there just being so many, so many selfies of her. Like, you know, I'm looking at this one from August, 2018 where she's, it's a close up selfie and she's like clearly in like in some tropical place at like a resort or something. Her skin's really, really, really clean and kind of like rosy. And then the caption is oil or wet or just look, there's so many like beach selfies where she's like kind of smoldering and like, like she looks hot and obviously she's very beautiful, but I think I was used to seeing her. Yeah. Just in a suit. And then I'm like, Oh, I forgot that she was kind of teasing her beauty in this more like kind of beckoning almost impish way so interesting I'm just scrolling looking to see if there's anything else worth calling out oh damn I'm seeing this picture from 2019 where she's like 
in a Kate dress. Like, I do think she has kind of a, you know, a trend antenna, um, or at least did. Um, who knows? I mean, now she's like a mom and she's like in Copenhagen. Oh, I want, actually wanted to ask you is that like, it's, you know, I was talking about a couple episodes ago, like when you look at all the girl bosses and they've all, they're all interesting to talk about one-on-one because as they've grown up, they all are like such a particular type of millennial woman. And Emily Weiss in Copenhagen, like that chapter is just really interesting to me. And I would just curious if you guys have any thoughts or analysis because the, the beats that Emily is tuned into and what she thinks are cool, like even back in Glossier's heyday, like there's like a a path of stepping stones that leads directly to Copenhagen. You know? <laughs> I'm like, wow, I see she's like following her impulses. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I guess one one way to read that would be like, oh, like she still is involved in a zeitgeist, you know, she's not like the leader of it or the um, the documenter of it, but she like still is in a thing that is really happening, you know. Um, so yeah, I think she's got her ear to the ground. <laughs> um, okay, that's mostly all I wanted to talk about, but um, transporting myself back to the heyday of Glossier and learning more about Emily and more about the company and just reflecting on that time it made me really proud to be a millennial and like millennial culture gets shit on so much and I also find myself averse to it in a lot of ways or trying to be like ah, oh, blah blah I'm not that blah 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 you know but like we need to have pride in like the shit that was going on when we were young you know and um I, I was in Vegas last weekend or I promise this relates I was in Vegas last weekend and I went to a chain smokers pool party so it's like a chain smokers concert but like in a pool it was it was so much fun it was definitely the highlight of the weekend um and everyone there was like 35 and just so fucking nice and throwing the fuck down and so it actually like despite it being like obviously debaucherous it was kind of wholesome actually because I was like this feels like when I was in college this feels like game day you know it was so so fun and, um, and like, I don't know, just being at the Chainsmokers concert, I was just like, oh, this is like, this is like out of 2015. And it just made me be like, wow, I love millennials. And I'm like, I kind of hate a lot of New York millennials, like, especially like in the media space. I feel like everyone's just, just kind of like really down about aging and kind of like, you know, transitioning into that, like, blah, I'm a grandma thing or like, just, just like, I hate that entire vibe. Um, like, I'm just like, youth is something that you declare and embody and like it's all about just like having energy and freedom and agility and like you can have that whenever um but uh oh yeah but you know like so many millennials are just like neurotic broke like complaining about student loans just like being like just being fucking downers and then I was like wait but we forget that we had some good ass times and like even if you just look at like pop culture from like our millennial youth like I'm not even I'm not talking like Y2K Britney Paris Hilton stuff I like think about like the music that we were dancing to in like middle and high school dances right like Kanye West Lil Wayne Nelly Furtado Chris Brown like Drake Gwen Stefani Timbaland T.I. And then like Avicii when we went to college like all of this shit went so hard and I forgot how awesome all this shit is. Um, So we don't have to like be embarrassed about the worst of our shit. We can just like be proud of the best of it, you know, and live out that spirit. Um, So that was one thing that researching this all made me feel. And then the second was it made me really proud to live in New York. Like we're at an interesting place in culture where like – one okay I okay I actually can't this is another like intersection of culture and technology (laughs) idiotic point I'm about to try to make but like you can live anywhere and consume the same shit right from the internet from globalization like you can have your vibe and like everyone can dress the same and everyone can be like to a certain extent like eating at the same type of restaurants with the same type of light fixtures and like everything can be the same right and so I think that in some ways like New York has lost its stronghold on like the promise of something great and like the empire state of mind right 
And that is true. Like you can do your shit anywhere. You can cultivate an audience anywhere. Like if you are seeking, okay, if you're seeking something big (laughs) in the abstract, you don't need to move to New York City to pursue it. And actually you might have a better chance elsewhere, right? But I feel like we need to remember that like New York is the scene of the crime for so much shit. And like, sure, Glossier is expanded like all over the world. Like anyone can get it now. Like it's not cool now. It's not scarce But like 123 Lafayette happened here and I remember being so excited when I came to New York before I had even moved here and I waited in line and I went there because I had been like ordering Glossier online and like following them on Instagram and I was and seeing all the people like tag the store and I was like I'm so excited to go there and I went and I photographed it and I posted it on my grid and it's like it's just good to have like pride in your place. And like I have had over the past five years that I've lived here, like so many doubts, so many bouts of loneliness, so much just like, what the fuck am I doing? And when I'm not in touch with that feeling of like cool shit happens here, whatever's going on in my like personal life, like it's it's harder to kind of square that and be like, I should still be here. And so to anyone that listens that lives in New York, like New York goes hard too and we need to continually reinvest and re um you know like the cities of Phoenix like there's so many periods of just like lameness or certain scenes that we don't feel into or we don't feel included in or we're just whatever but like this is the best city in the world and we are so lucky to be a part of it so um yeah I just I want to take those things and like hold hold them close um Anyways, don't be afraid to have a point of view and don't be afraid to fuck shit up in the process and don't be fucking lame. (laughs) We have to like hold ourselves to a high standard, throw the fuck down and like do something cool. Um, Anyways, that is what I have to say about that. And um, thank you. Thank you again to Marissa for the time. Thank you again to for all of you for listening. And yeah, we'll see you on the other side. All right. Bye.